going to start our Q&A session. And I'm sure that some of you will be wondering to what extent our new UCP government will be willing to let environmental concerns trump business development. But the microphone is over there for questioners to my left. So please line up, state your name beforehand, keep your question or comment short, and uh, no questions from the floor, please. So let's invite our speaker, Bobby, back to the microphone. Hi, uh, my name is Dave Shepard. Um, I'm wondering if you have, if you could tell us any recent information on uh, wind turbines and bats. Do you know anything, bats? Oh, you know? bats. <clears throat> Do you have anything on that? I, I don't have a lot other than when I looked at the um, applications for the new wind farms that are proposed in the MD of Pincher Creek, Every single one of them identified a high mortality risk for bats. So it is still an issue. I know that um, you know, it varies depending on you know, where the, the tower is going to be located. But clearly, although they've done some things, they, they've identified some mitigations that it's possible to do, like when they run you know, at certain speeds. But Generally speaking, that was my finding, that every one of them said there was a high mortality issue for bats and raptors in uh, Pinch Creek. Okay. Okay. Um, Terry Shillington, thank you for your presentation and uh, some very thoughtful stuff. It wasn't clear to me from listening to you what you see the solution as. Um, one can think of one solution might be to simply restrict the amount of energy produced from wind. Uh, but are there, do you see uh, areas of compatibility? Uh, are there areas of the southwest that uh, would be good for wind energy production that don't involve the grasslands? What, how, what would your recipe be if the government came looking for your opinion? Yeah, I think for us it is key that they don't develop um, any of these projects on native prairie. There are areas um, in southern Alberta that are quite um, developed already. So in other words, they've been developed for agricultural purposes, you know, other purposes. There would be less impact you know, for a wind development to occur on that type of property than there is on the native grassland. And I mean, there's, there's other impacts, though, for residents and viewscapes and those types of things. But if I was looking at it purely from an environmental point of view, I think the key is not to develop these projects on native prairie. And I think the other key thing that we're looking for is not to allow the development of transmission in areas where there's unfragmented stretches of native prairie. Because in some examples, to, to your question, there are 
wind farms that were identified as part of this REP process. And we haven't seen the applications yet, but some of the locations where they're proposing to go is a more um, agricultural area. But the way ISO is looking at it right now, those developments also impact transmission on native prairie. So the two have to go hand in, hand in glove. Okay, next question, please. Douglas Mitchell. Uh, thank you, Bobby, for your presentation, and uh, I share some of your concerns. However, I'm uh, persuaded to become a, a little bit of an environmentalist. And all you're doing now is, is throwing into question where should we be going with things like um, non-fossil fuel mm -hmm. energy. And I think it seems to me that it's continually confusing as to where we go in the future, in the long term. I realize yours is just a microcosm of the whole thing, but it is a bit one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest, uh, concern that faces us, particularly to come up to the next federal election. And I wonder if you have any suggestions. I, I in fact, I, I would say, in, in some ways, uh, both uh, solar and wind uh, are uh, a boondoggle for the big companies. You know that uh, uh, the uh, solar thing is very much tied in with uh, the electrical companies as well. And where, what's going to be the long-term solution to this problem, which is a small microcosm? Maya, I wish I had the detailed answer to that question. But, but I have some thoughts, I guess, that, that I'm willing to share. So I think wind is one of the most problematic renewables. And part of the reason for that is not just this location issue. It's the issue of its um, variability and the lack of storage. So <clears throat> if you build a 100 megawatt wind turbine, on average, only 35 megawatts of electricity are actually produced. That's its availability factor because it's so variable. So, so that's a challenge. You mentioned solar. You know, I think that Australia's had more experience with solar than many countries, and they um, have great solar resources. And I think there's some real potential that they are um, seeing in that country where you can place solar on you know, shopping centers and on, on existing areas. For me, one of the biggest challenges re with renewables is the fixation on making them large industrial um, applications. So if you take solar and you try and turn it into the equivalent of a gas power plant, you're gonna suck up a huge amount of land and you know it's only going to be good for like 15 years. So I think there's some potential and exploration that should occur more around distributed systems, which then also that doesn't mean you need the huge transmission infrastructure. You start to step back and say, and I mean, we know people who are quite self-sufficient with solar, who aren't even connected to the grid. You know, one of their comments is, hey, it requires a little bit of a lifestyle change. And I think if people are really, really serious about the environment and about climate change, 
then they need to, to recognize that it's going to require some of us to give up some things and change the way we do things at a personal and local level. Trying to solve it all by pretending that we can replace you know, fossil fuel generation with wind or even solar isn't realistic. In the long term, there'll be a mix of fuels, but fundamentally, it's going to be a change in the way the whole structure is set up and how we behave as individuals. Okay, next question, please. My name is Knut Peterson. Thank you very much, Bobby, for coming to present to us today. Uh, my question relates to placement of power lines. Uh, typically, power companies would like to go straight lines. Uh, do you see any way that they could uh, spend a little bit more money and put them in less vulnerable places? Or places where it may not affect the biodiversity as much as they do now? You know, we have been a huge advocate in our association for the power lines to be placed to the extent possible on existing utility corridors. The, the challenge to some extent is what is an existing utility corridor? So in that area that I showed you on my slide where it, it's largely green, you know, they had, um, for this route that they're proposing for the MD of Pincher Creek, they had two kind of scenarios. One is you go through the back country, so to speak, where it's less visible, but you rip up way more native grasslands and have more wildlife destruction. So, of course, we were all very concerned about that. The answer to that was, well, we'll build it along your existing road allowance, which in some cases a road, sometimes it isn't. But the net effect of that is now you've got these monster towers literally in people's yards. So you've got you know, a lot more people who would be within, say, 150 meters of the tower. Well, that's not an attractive option either. So I mean, I do think the utilities are trying to respond to the concerns. But as long as the only answer is you have to build a power line within that region, you're going to be hard pressed to, you know, to sort it out. And cost-wise, you know, they we did one ex one option we explored with them was rebuilding an existing transmission line. Well, one of the challenges they immediately identified was, well, that line was built under old rules, and the right-of-way was this wide. The new rules are the right-of-way is this wide, so we'll have to go in and widen everything. So it's not a zero-impact solution. So I think the time will come when there'll be so much pressure that they'll either have to find an alternative, like the distribution, like, like distributed, or, you know, find alternative routes. But as I said, sometimes, at least in the example we're using, there just isn't a route that mitigates all of those things. We've been looking for 15 years, I think, and they've been back three times, and they're still pushing for the same, same route. Okay. The uh, microphone is free for those that have any comments or questions. Meantime, uh, what about the, um, the detriments to human health that we hear about from wind turbines, the buzzing, the noise, and, and, and does it really kill uh, large numbers of birds and bats and things? Would you like to talk about that aspect? Well, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert or having done any of the studies around this. 
I mean, I've read a lot of material that is out there. I would say the impact on birds and bats is very, very real, and it's particularly real, like I said, in areas where there's native prairie, simply because there is that diversity of species. And again, going back to the applications that were filed, you know, I think in one of the applications in the MD of Pincher Creek, there were 16 at-risk species that were going to be directly impacted, you know, by the, the windmills. But, you know, there's been a fair amount of research that's been completed, but often it's um, people trot out conflicting studies, you know, depending on your perspective. But I think it's pretty much a given that in an area of native prairie there is destruction of wildlife. Now, whether people consider that a lot or a little, that's a little bit on your personal perspective. And what about the buzzing that on the, the sound on, on uh, human health? Well, and again, I know there's been some research done. There was a study done in Ontario because, of course, the wind issues are huge down in Ontario. And I know of at least one study that indicated that based on the information that was presented, um, there appeared to be human health impacts. Again, what um, I've read, though, is that because these studies are largely based on anecdotal feedback, they aren't always taken as being a scientifically credible you know, analysis. There's a study actually underway in Australia right now. It just started that I think is going to be um, very helpful in answering that question. I think it's a five-year study, and they're actually um, replicating noise, harmonics, um, the, the things people are concerned about in a controlled environment to try and, and make a better assessment. But today you'll get multiple uh, perspectives on that question because there isn't really good scientific-based research that's accepted right. by everyone. Right, but I know a photographer friend of mine who was building a house not far from Cowley, halfway through decided he couldn't stand it and left. And, and the noise is real. I mean, if you've ever stood beside a windmill, they, they do make a lot of noise. In fact, if you stand anywhere near a transmission line, they make a huge amount of noise. We've got a 500 kV transmission line that's probably two miles or more from our place, and it's, it sings, and it's not a pretty song <laughs> when, it, when, it, uh, when the wind blows. Okay, fine. Let's move on. Next question, please. Uh, name is Doug Neal, and... Uh, <clears throat> I've, uh, I wonder why we don't uh, find other methods of uh, producing electricity. Um, we have a, a, a never-ending supply of garbage, <laughs> and you can produce electricity with garbage. Uh, I've seen it done, mm -hmm. and uh, the emissions from producing gar uh, electricity with the heat from garbage is, is, is fine. It's, it's not a problem. So uh, Lethbridge was in the process of dealing with this kind of thing, uh, and I don't know why they backed out of it. Uh, with a never-ending supply of fuel, why would they do, why are we using wind when the wind stops, the, the electricity stops. 
We've got another never-ending <laughs> supply of garbage. We've got so much we ship it to the Philippines. You're, you're absolutely right. Okay. So again, I'm no expert on biomass or garbage, but I'm well aware that that is a technology that's been evolving and that there are places in the world that, that actually do generate you know, using garbage or other fuel sources. Um, I guess the only insight I can offer is that in one of our conversations with the um, Alberta Electricity System Operator, about their um, long-term transmission plans. One of the questions we asked them, because they were assuming the generation sources would be wind, um, solar, or gas, or, or coal, or maybe a little bit of hydro, and they didn't mention biomass. And when we asked, the feedback was, well, we wanted to include some of that, but it's much more expensive. So the decision was not to not to include it as a probable alternative. And they were just looking at it from a probabilities, a forecasting point of view, because that's their job. They don't make those decisions about what is generated. But they're just saying, realistically, they thought the cost would preclude you know, a lot of development in that area at this time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead if you have a yeah, follow-up question. Can I question. say one more thing? I've seen it done. They did it in Manitoba. Mm. The cost is not that out of the out of the way, uh, they had it fixed up for uh, about twenty or thirty uh, municipalities mm. to to bring their garbage to a facility, and uh, they they had two or three people picking out the uh, recyclables. The rest would go into the furnace. They can use rubber tires. They can use glass. They can. Uh, and the and the cost mm. was not that far out, uh, and I think oh, this was quite a few years ago, mm. but it was it cost the municipalities forty dollars a ton to oh. to bring this, and that's that's including the shipping to get this garbage to to the facility. So, cost is not a problem. Well, it sounds like a really intriguing solution. I hope it goes somewhere because it would be, as you say, great to use a fuel source that's so widely available. Uh, I think I think the politicians, it's a make work project, so uh, they don't want to get involved in it. <laughs> okay, I think you're probably right. Next question, please. My name's William Ratz. I've got some questions about this. You know, I mean, you're knocking, you're knocking uh, windmills and solar, and you're knocking windmills and solar, and and I don't, I don't get it. You know, I mean, we got to take care of our kids down the road here. This producing power with coal and gas is not a good solution. The windmill is not creating carbon footprint. Neither is the solar. So I don't know I, I, if we're protect, are you protecting the oil companies, the gas companies, or the coal companies? There's there's a, there's an ulterior motive here, I think, and we have to take care of our, our future, our, our children, and I'm 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 serious about that. And I don't see a problem with windmills being out in the middle of nowhere. And you know, I mean, you say, well, you, it doesn't matter <clears throat> if you go and stick them on farmland. That's okay, but you can't have them out there because somebody doesn't like the looks of them. Well. Maybe they like the looks of smokestacks better. I, you know, you, when you're burning, just on the Shearness powerhouse, for example, okay? That's a 750 megawatt powerhouse. You're burning 250 tons of coal per hour. And that's going into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's coming down in acid rain. And you think 
you think there's an environmental problem with the windmill, go take a look at what's, what's happened out east with them, with them powerhouses. There's hundreds of miles of trees that are dead from acid rain. Hey, you know, let's, let's and, and, and take a look at Fort McMurray. Mm -hmm. Fort McMurray is a disaster zone. And what, what are the oil companies doing to, to fix that up there? They're just getting another extension on their cleanup date. Mm -hmm. And, and walking away from it, and they're leaving, and, and, and these oil wells, these guys are walking away from there, say, well, I'm washing my hands of it, because mm -hmm. it's gonna cost too much to clean up the well. Yeah, so who, who pays for that? The taxpayer. Okay, You know, you can, you can argue all this stuff, you know, yeah, against no. windmills and solar, but, and, and I have solar. I have solar on my house here. I have solar on my house down south. I'm off the grid down south. I don't, I don't have nothing else. I don't, I'm not tied into the power line. It works great. But there's all this negative talk about solar and windmills. Hey, I think we need to stop that. Okay, we, we, we so need we're going to gonna ask, ask Bobby to react to yeah, no, I'm, I'm that happy, statement. I'm happy to do that. And I understand your frustration. I didn't come to promote coal and gas. Um, that was not the, the point of the presentation. We have to make changes to the energy mix. It's absolutely imperative. I think we all appreciate and accept that. And a lot of the, the conversation today has been around, well, what are the choices? The choices are imperfect at the moment. But let me give you a bit of an example on wind and, and gas right now. One of the, the reasons I am particularly challenged by wind as an alternative to gas and oil is that it doesn't actually displace gas and oil. If you read the Alberta Electric System Operator's 2017 long-term forecast for generation and some of the reports that they did on um, you know, what's going to be needed for transmission, it's based on the fact that when you add wind to the system, they don't count it as generation because it's unreliable. So in effect, you must have sufficient gas or coal or something else available at a moment's notice to fill in the gap when the wind doesn't blow. That's why they're restructuring the design of the electric system to accommodate more wind. They actually have to pay people who have gas generation or other generation to have their plants available so that on a moment's notice, they can fire them up and replace wind. When I was in South Australia, they had, they achieved their 30% renewables goal. They had about 30% of their generation coming from wind. They had some really rough goes in the beginning. And one of the rough reasons was when the wind stopped blowing, it was due to a storm, they had a, they were relying on a tie line from another state that produced coal generation. That was their backup. And when that amount of wind generation dropped off, it wasn't sufficient to power the state. They drew on that line, the draw was so heavy, the line did what it's supposed to do, shut off, and they had two million people without power, some for as long as six weeks. And wind has a place. It needs to be part of the mix. But we also have to be realistic in that it, it doesn't displace all this coal and gas. It needs a transition until such time as there is adequate storage uh, 
that you can actually store the wind energy and bring it out when the wind isn't blowing. And that's okay. a challenge right now. Thank you. Do you want a quick follow-up on that? Go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, well, that, you you got to get to all of the stats. I mean, you're, you're telling me that, okay, the windmill shuts down, so now we got to start up the coal plant. And you have, you have the grid tied in already. That grid is tied in between Canada, the U.S. It's tied in all, yes. all across the line. Yes, it is. Okay. So, you know, saying that you got to start up the, the, the coal plant right away, you know, I, you can, and, and solar, hey, the wind is blowing most of the time in those areas that we're talking about. You said there's only 30% production 30, there? 30, 35%. That's the Alberta electricity operator stats, not mine. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, and that's, I would say that's questionable because a lot of times it's windy up there and they're, and they're shut down. The reason they're shut down is because the coal-fired plants control when they run and when they don't run. Actually, I think in the market today, it's price. Market today, it's price. Okay. So it costs more to run a windmill than it does a coal plant? No, I'm just saying that people bid into the system at a price and they are dispatched you know, according to what well, they well, And who controls that? System operator. Okay, <laughs> okay, system okay. Operator. we're <laughs> going to move on. Yeah, you know, th this is a... Yeah, it's just Thank a you. I'm happy to talk to you offline if you'd like. I mean. Okay, next question, please, or comment. <clears throat> Dave Shepard again. Um, I'm interested in the uh, environmental assessments that are done for wind projects. I assume... Most new projects require that, do they? Or they, they do. It's a fairly new requirement. Okay. So um, one of the things we had asked um, when we started researching this was if we could get a view of what the performance was in um, past projects in terms of environmental impact and you know number of birds or bats, and basically we were told that there was very little. Um, detailed cumulative reporting. So, I mean, each individual project had to do their own thing, but you can't get a, an overall report today that tells you in aggregate how things did. They've introduced new reporting, which is now a requirement for the new projects, but none of them have actually gotten to that stage yet, to the best of my knowledge. Um, that was my next question. I'm aware of at least one assessment that was done some years ago because a friend of mine worked on it. Um, what I'm wondering is, do they ever follow up? My impression is there's never a follow up five, ten years down the road to see what the actual impact was. Do you know of anything like that? N not unless it's actually part of the Alberta Utilities Commission decision. Like the Utilities Commission has the ability to tell a wind project, for example, if they're concerned, they can create a uh, an obligation, you know, to submit a report at a certain point in time. But unless that's actually been built into the decision, I don't think there's a mechanism. At least I'm not aware of one, not to say there. there okay, is. next question, please. My name is Henry Einen, and my question is, is the MD of Pinchot Creek Council on board with you, and what role do they play in terms of mitigating what you're describing as being problematic? That is a great question. I'm not sure I know the answer. We've had multiple meetings with the councillors in the MD of Pincher Creek and shared a lot of the information that, that I'm sharing with you today. I think up until recently, 
The MD has been very, very supportive of wind development, largely because of the um, tax revenue that it generates, which is legit. I mean, that's, it's a great source of revenue. But I think they're beginning to see that there are other consequences. And the residents in the area, MD of Pincher Creek, are becoming much less enthused. I mean, they did a study, I guess, 10 years or so ago and asked residents what they thought about windmills, and it was pretty positive. Interestingly enough, um, they did one here a couple years ago, and it had changed dramatically. Now that they've actually experienced, there's a lot more negativity. So the, the MD has agreed, and they're in the process of doing a strategic plan and a new land use plan where they intend to take a look at these land conflicts. Now, it's not finished. They haven't made final decisions or determinations around what it's going to look like. But I think there's a much greater awareness there now, and they are starting to take a look at what, if anything, you know, their role should be. Okay, thanks. This will be the last question, please. Short question and short answer. Two short questions and two short answers. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, the first question is we've talked about production a lot, but I'm, my interest is in consumption. Do, do we, is there anywhere we can go for stats to see what an average household consumes and what, I mean, instead of taking the direction of always that? And the second one is, I've kind of looked at the website, but how does a person join the Livingston Landowners? You see Sheila um, right after this meeting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can join by contacting on the website, but, but Sheila's here. Okay. Um, with respect to finding out about load, yes, there's information on the um, ISO's website, so the Alberta Electric System Operator, if you plug that in. Not always easy to find because it's buried in a lot of stats. If you're just looking for like average consumption numbers, most of the utility companies will have that on their website somewhere. You know, they'll look talking about billing or whatever and they'll show sort of what an average is. In, um, just as a general statement, consumption is actually dropping particularly in southern Alberta, which is why, you know, we get so exercised about the transmission lines because it's not needed because people want to use more power. They've got way, plenty of transmission for that. It's needed because they're trying to connect this wind to the grid. Okay. Uh, let us first thank Bobby for uh, her presentation. Thank you.